Hello, and welcome to Right Care at Baptist. I'm your host, Dr. Jake Lancaster, the Chief Medical Information Officer for Baptist, here with Dr. Henry Sullivan, the Chief Medical Officer for Baptist. And today we're going to do a deep dive into the information blocking rule as a result of the 21st Century Cures Act. Henry, why don't you tell the audience what you hope to accomplish with this episode? Thanks, Jake. And listen, uh, for the audience, this, this is a role reversal. I get to ask Jake all the questions today. Jake is our system expert as the chief medical information officer and understanding what this information blocking uh, rule means. So, so, Jake, tell me and tell the audience what this means, the 21st Century Cures Act information blocking and how will that impact the practitioner both within the hospital setting and also within their practice sure and and i'll start with the 21st century cures act so and this is all coming from a, a grand rounds presentation i did back in september that is still available if you would like to go back and listen to it i'll probably go into more detail in that presentation but the the law was passed back in december of 2016 it was a bipartisan bill and the goal of the bill was really to modernize a lot of the aspects of our healthcare infrastructure. So it put a lot of money towards precision medicine and biomedical research, uh, trying to streamline the FDA drug approval process, um, sent some money to target drugs for rare diseases. But one of the other main things that it did is it defined interoperability and prohibited information blocking. And we'll get into some detail of what that means but the goal of that piece of the legislation was to really try to free the data that's out there within the healthcare system and really open up new avenues for innovation from third parties kind of freeing that data outside of just the healthcare systems and these electronic health records silos that they were um, referring to in the past so that was the the overall intent of that uh, provision of the law um, it goes on to define information blocking, and I'm going to read you the, the definition from the law, which says, in general, information blocking is a practice by a health IT developer of certified health IT, health information networks, health information exchanges, or healthcare providers, us, that except as required by law or specified by the Secretary of Health and Human Services as a reasonable and necessary activity, is likely to interfere with the access, exchange, or use of electronic health information. So that, that makes it clear as mud, I guess. And so, you know, essentially to, to dumb it down, um, it defines, you know, three kind of categories, developers, you know, you would think of your EMR developers or any other healthcare technology developers, um, health IT or healthcare providers. So that's your, your doctors, also your healthcare systems, and then also your health information exchanges, those, those networks that kind of shared that information between those different actors. And it, it's saying that, that none of them, except if, if it adheres to one of these reasonable and necessary exceptions, um, can prohibit or interfere with that access of electronic health information. So, all right, so Chase, let's go back to the basics. Let's dumb it down one more even level, especially for someone at my, in my age demographic. What is electronic health information? Clarify that term for me and for the audience. Well, the term electronic health information, um, it refers out to some other laws that have been passed, uh, but 
to not get into too much jargon and detail that is out there in the in the federal registrar um, essentially any information that is electronic that is used by a covered entity a healthcare provider healthcare organization to make a decision about a patient so if there is electronic information in your system and you use it to make a medical decision about a patient that's electronic health information okay so it, just given the data capture that we've been able to assimilate since we electronic health record came to be, we've got more data out there, Jake, than I think anyone is aware of. As a matter of fact, I think we have a hard time assimilating that data into actionable items. So now that health information data is going to be shared. How will we control or is there a need to control or is there a need to filter that information down so that it is digestible to the person who is requesting it? Well, so you're, you're right. There is a lot of data within the, the healthcare uh, record. Um, and that was one of the reasons that um, there was a lot of pushback from the vendors on this on this requirement to release all healthcare data because um, just the sheer num amount of data that would be required to be released would be a little overwhelming to both the vendors trying to do it and then to the the patient kind of receiving it and so that's why um, they kind of came back and refined it and said at the very beginning this first stage we're going we're going to break up this implementation into several different stages the first stage which is supposed to go live november 2nd um, is going to refer to a very small subset of this data, um, which is going to, and it, they, they throw out another term for you. So it's the USCDI uh, core data set that you're really going to have to comply with up front. And so your next question is, is, is what's in that core data set? What's in that USCDI? Exactly. And, and this it includes many things, many things that we already share with patients in their patient portal, many th things that we, you may get um, through your your health information exchange that we're, we've been getting for several years now, like the patient's problem list, allergies, medications, um, those sorts of things, their demographics. But it's added a couple of new things to that, that old so, data so that we used to. That's the old, what we used to call a flat file. And right. that, that just had four data points in it, like you mentioned. It was diagnoses, meds, allergies, and, and a little bit of a demographic information on you. And that was it. Right. right. Okay. So what's new in the CDI? So the entire USCDI includes allergies, uh, something called the assessment and plan of treatment, care team members, so whoever's taking care of that patient. Clinical notes is a big new one goals of care, health concerns, immunizations, lab tests, medications, demographics, problem list, procedures, provenance, smoking status, device identifiers, and vital signs. Now, many of the things we've already been sharing, um, the big new additions are clinical notes, and we'll talk about what clinical notes, because there's a wide variety of types, and then, um, certain pediatric vital signs were, were not included before, like head circumference and uh, BMI percentage and things of that nature. So those are, those are new. Uh, provenance is also new. That is mainly the metadata around some of those values. So, you know, who, 
who was the author of the note and at what time, that sort of stuff, uh, who placed the order for the lab and at what time, who's the authorizing provider. So some of that um, more metadata-ish stuff. So so in, in, let's stay with that for just a minute. So, it, so then it becomes who is the attributed or the accountable party who is responsible for sharing this information back to the patient or be able to release this information. How do we know who is that accountable or attributed attributed owner of that data such that if there is a challenge that you block information sharing, do we know that that's attributed back to the owner that actually was the proper person to have either withheld or shared this information? Now, that is a good question. And I don't think anybody really knows the answer to who is going to be on the hook um, for the, the practice of information blocking. One of the things that is has not been set yet is the penalties for the provider community for information blocking. It's has some vague language in the and the law that says they will be um, referred to the appropriate agencies for you know disciplinary action or something of that nature. We we expect that there will be a final ruling. Um, I believe it comes from the Office of Inspector General um, on what those actual penalties are and and what sort of uh, you know, teeth to the law will, will will be there for the vendor side, for the health IT developer side. They're already spelled out. That came from a different agency, and I believe it's one million dollars per you know violation of the law. Um, so it, it's pretty steep on that side, um, but the provider side, it's not it's not as clear. And so you know, one of the questions that we get often is, well, if if I'm a, a doctor and I choose not to share the note with the patient, um, and we'll go into you know the, our options for for permissible um, exemptions to the law and what you can do to to block that information. But uh, so if the doctor in the clinic that is owned by Baptist does not share the information, is it just the provider who would get in trouble by the law, or is it the provider plus the you know the entire clinic and organization that is a part of? Would they get in trouble? So I, it's a little gray to me right now, and I think we're going to need further clarification on, on, um, you know, from ONC and, and others on what that entails. So you touched on this a little bit, Jake, and and I think for all of the physicians perhaps listening today, we know that in the in the doctor-patient relationship, information is shared, which certainly is. Uh, critical to for the patient to share, uh, so it, it allows the, the practitioner to to provide a better, uh, more um, complete uh, care of the patient, and, and some of that has to do with behavioral health or other very very exquisite private information. Um, yeah. How how is that then to be uh, managed? Uh, sensitive discussions, careful discussions. Um, how is that to be either shared or withheld or there are rules around what what's in that what's in that material? Sure. First, uh, let me just speak a little bit on the changes that we're likely to see within our system. So currently we don't share any of the notes by default. You always have the option to click that share with patient button in the note um, and the notes that are going to be required to be shared by default are consult notes, discharge summaries, HMPs, imaging narratives, lab report narratives, path report narratives, procedure notes, and progress notes. And this is both on the inpatient and the outpatient side. So clinic notes would be included in this. 
lab results are also something that we routinely delay if they are abnormal or they fall into this sensitive category. And um, ONC considers that information blocking if you implement unnecessary delays or response times that limit the timeliness of EHI. Okay. And it says only in specific circumstances do we believe delaying patients access to their health information so that providers can retain full control over when and how it is communicated would be both necessary and reasonable. And so, you know, the question then end up, ends up becoming if we have to start releasing those immediately, except under specific circumstances. So you're going to wonder, well, what are those circumstances where it's permissible? And the big one for us, there, there's eight total exceptions to the rule, um, but really only one that is mostly going to come into play on a day-to-day -day basis, and that is the preventing harm exception. And in order to meet the exception, the the action's got to meet certain key conditions so that the provider must hold a reasonable belief that withholding that information will reduce the risk of a harm. It must be no broader than necessary, so you can't make a blanket, I'm not going to release all my notes for all my clinic patients' practice. It has to be on an individual case-by-case -case basis. You can't just say, okay, I'm getting a lab test on this one patient and it's for uh, an HIV panel, therefore I'm going to delay the release of that result for every patient. It must satisfy at least one condition from the categories of type of risk, type of harm, and implementation basis. So if, if you believe that the data is corrupt, it's the wrong data, you know, it's the wrong patient, uh, you don't have to release it, you know, to that patient. You know, we have that sometimes when, you know, some records get merged erroneously, so you don't have to release that data in that case. But the real thing that will come up most commonly is your belief that releasing the data will endanger the life of the patient or someone else. So, you know, it's not that you believe that releasing the data is going to cause that patient confusion or make them anxious. It's that you think that releasing that data is going to endanger the life of the patient or somebody else. And it must be determined on an individual basis. And, and that, that's kind of the gist of that preventing harm exception. Well, so Jake, you, you, while you've helped me out a little bit with that explanation, you really haven't. So at the end of the day, there are several questions that I know any practitioner is going to probably want to get a clarification from you being the font of all knowledge uh, about what is what I, what is the definition of harm to the patient? And let's say there is a, um, a test result that uh, their, their bone marrow test had does show that they have a soft tissue carcinoma, um, or uh, they've, they've had a, uh, an STD screen because they're concerned, they have some concerns in their current relationship. Uh, and lo and behold, a bone marrow test in one case is positive and it's, it, it does require perhaps a second opinion that needs to go to another lab to review a bone marrow study, which can be very complicated before you settle in on a diagnosis. Uh, that may be one exception. This other could be uh, harm to the patient or perhaps to their relationship, their partner, when they've had an STD 
uh, test that comes back that you'd like to be able to counsel them about what this STD actually means. In the other case, counsel them what the bone marrow test actually has. So would those fall under the criteria of a sensitive test result that, that you can block until you've had a reasonable time to talk to the patient counselor? I mean, so it's all up to, you know, your, I guess, tolerance for risk, depending on your reading and interpreting of the law. If you think that that releasing that information is going to cause that patient to endanger their life, so you think releasing that STD is going to cause them to harm themselves or, or harm somebody else, based on that one particular, based on your knowledge of that patient and their circumstances of their surroundings. So I, I don't think you could say just in general, all STD results shouldn't be released to that, to all patients. Um, but if you happen to know that family situation and know that it was an abusive relationship and know that there was some uh, concern about them gaining access to their patient portal, I think that would be reasonable, but that's my interpretation. This really is a challenge to empathy uh, because there are some tests that, that you know, if properly counseled, the patient would, would uh, understand this result as opposed to seeing a printout uh, removed from proper counsel by the, by the provider who, is, who has that doctor-patient relationship. So it, it, it is a challenge to empathy, I, I feel. Yeah, yeah. so one of the things you got to think about also is the, the, the counter side of that argument is if you, so you're ordering this test, this STD panel, and while you're ordering it, you have, you're going to have the option to delay the release of that. Um, it'll default to immediate release on the order, but prior to placing the order, you'll have the option to select um, delay release. Now, if you decided to do that, and I'm just going to give you a, a personal example, I had a needle stick injury. And you get a needle stick injury, you know, they test you for HIV and Hep C. If you decided to delay the release of that for me for three days, I'm going to sit there in bed because I did this. I, I had it done on a Friday morning. The stick was done on a Friday morning. I had the labs drawn, you know, several hours or a couple hours later. And then I checked my patient portal for the next day until uh, I got those results back. If you delayed that for 72 hours, you're going to cause me a lot of anxiety sitting there refreshing my screen, wondering if I, you know, contracted the virus. But luckily, the institution I worked in gave me that access immediately and I had the peace of mind. Uh, same thing could be true if, if you were doing, you know, scans for your cancer patient. Uh, you were, you know, doing your yearly follow up and you were restaging them. If you decided on ordering that you wanted to delay that, um, until you had a chance to review, then that patient who may have normal, uh, be progression free, is going to sit there and stew until that result came back. I remember my wife, um, we had, we were pregnant with our, our first or second, I can't remember, uh, had an ultrasound done by the tech, and the tech thought they saw something suspicious, but they had to refer to the OB, you know, for that final read to get the result back. And the OB was the one that was supposed to call her with the result. But the OB actually went out of town the next day and was gone for a week. And my wife is sitting there stewing, thinking something is wrong. And she called up there, I don't know how many times, until they finally got the on-call person to look at it and, and be able to, to call and communicate to her. So, you know, delaying it's going to also hurt, um, you know, the, the other innocent part. you got to look at both sides of the coin, and it's not always 
you know, that one patient that's going to have that bad outcome, you, you're, you're harming the rest of the population as well by waiting. That's a great counterpoint. And you, 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 you made a, a very strong case for information sharing that's, that's prompt uh, and unfiltered. Uh, and but do you feel because this may be a change in some of the ways in which a doctor and their patient have a relationship? Do you do you sense then that properly counseled on the front end? Uh, if I said, Jake, well, let's join you, let's draw your Hep C and HIV from this needle stick, it'll drop in the portal. Now, if it shows up and it's concerning to you. I'll be back on Monday. Can we can we talk about it when I'm back in the office on Monday? I think properly counseled. Oh yeah. I don't think the provider will find this information sharing uh, as uh, off-putting or or anything that threatens that relationship. Do you? I mean, uh, you know. No, no, and that's definitely something that we're going to need to do. We need to get out in front of it, and when you're talking to the patient and ordering the labs, explain. You may see the results of this before I do. And, you know, oftentimes these are very confusing. You know, please wait until you hear from us before you make a decision based on any of these results. We would, we would love to talk to you prior to you acting in any way. Um, I, a lot of organizations are doing that. A lot of organizations are, are even putting a little notice up in their patient portal saying your provider may have not had time to act to look at these results quite yet. If you have any questions or concerns, please talk to them first. So a lot of organizations are doing that and getting some good results. Most organizations that have gone live with this and many have been doing it for years say that most providers don't even notice an effect. Um, about 75% are unaware that any change even occurred. Um, patients love it though. Um, they get a lot better patient satisfaction scores, patient engagement scores based on this new practice. So that is that is an upside. Patients state that they have more adherence. Um, one of the articles I reviewed for this um, said that you know it was like 90, 95% of all patients would not want to go back to the old way of doing it. They all preferred this new method. And it was only it was a smaller number of physicians, but about maybe 20% of physicians would wanted to go back to the old way, whereas 80% wanted to stick with um, the new way. So it does show that most of the time it really comes off as a non-event for the physicians as far as headaches from this new policy. Um, and there's some, you know, downstream benefit. Well, I was going to say, it just seems to be a workflow process that it, yeah. for, for the clinician. You say, here, here's, it'll be a change to the workflow, but here's how you mitigate against this change. So on the whole, then, it seems that this, the Cures Act uh, and the, the information sharing is going to be a good thing. Yes, and so we haven't even talked about implications for the information blocking provision and other benefits to the physicians. So, you know, that same data set that I talked about, that USCDI, the clinical notes, and all that electronic health information, it's not just uh, between physicians and patients that, so you're gonna, this is opening up potential avenues for you getting that information from other clinics that previously were not sharing that information. Now they're going to need to start being prepared to do that. Other like insurance providers and things of that nature. So that interoperability that the entire 21st Century Cures Act uh, provision really wanted to achieve is going to start playing a much bigger role over the next four years. So we have until 2023 to get this all built out. 
Um, but some of those other key, uh, that key sharing of information from, from other clinics, from other providers, also third-party developers being able to take this information more easily out of Epic or out of CERN or any vendor and uh, do things with it and provide physicians with a, a new way to kind of visualize data as opposed to just that the one way that you get out of um, your your currently used vendor is going to be a big change and big opportunity for a lot of innovation in healthcare, hopefully. So, Jake, so so it will it be uh, in, in its first phase, will it be more of a push? I'm in a clinic. I've been requested to push information to this other site. It's, let's say I'm in the ED seeing a patient and and you're in your office and I and the patient identifies you as the provider. Do I reach out to you and say, Jake, would you push? this CDI platform to me, or is it a pull? Can I pull as well as you push? And so a lot of it's gonna take place within these health information exchanges that are already set up. So uh, Epic and Cerner and all the other kind of big name vendors have joined these consortiums. Um, you know, Care Everywhere is the one we use within Epic. And so these data types will start being accessible through that same process we use now to get that those lab nodes. So you're not gonna to have to go in and and physically share it to another person. It'll all be handled uh, on the back end side by us. Um, now the question comes, you know, maybe a patient has a new app, some third party developer developed a, a, a new app that they want uh, to use and the patient likes it and wants to be able to look at their diabetic trends on their app. So they wanna see their, you know, what their gl glucose and, and medications have been doing over the past uh, year and so the uh, uh, vendor developed an app. The patient downloaded it, and they come to you or they come to Baptist and say, "I would like to get my information into that app." Um, because of this law, we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to figure out a way to interface with that app, uh, whereas previously we didn't really have to do that. Um, so you know, you as the as the doctor aren't going to have to do anything. But if if you're an independent practitioner and they come to you with that request. Um, and this gets into some of those exceptions that we didn't talk about, but the law gives you 30 days to comply with that request, essentially, which is going to be steep for even for an organization of our size to be able to do it, and especially if that app didn't meet certain standards. And so there's there's a few other exceptions to the law, such as um, infeasibility exceptions, security exceptions, performance exceptions, content and manner. And the content and manner exception is really what's going to apply to this one. And so essentially it, it kind of gives you a little leeway to say, well, I can't really do it in that manner, but I can do it in this other manner. Is that acceptable, acceptable to you? And you can go back and negotiate. But I think once those become more popular, there's not a lot out there right now that do this, but, um, you know, Apple health is one, you know, if we didn't push data to Apple health and one of our patients wanted them uh, to get their data on Apple Health, we would have to we would have to configure our system to meet that requirement. So you bring up another question. Then I'm I'm an individual and I want this to be on my app on my phone because I'm so interested in monitoring X Y Z. Would you send my information to this app that I just put on my phone? Have Have I then released my PHI to a, a device or to an app, and I'm not really sure where it goes beyond that app. Is there is there concern then about my own my own personal PHI privacy? In yes. That? Well, uh, so that was a lot of the pushback by the law and by a lot of um, um, organizations, including 
you know, you know many many healthcare providers was that you know they did not trust a lot of these third party apps that may be developed to be good stewards of privacy of that patient. And so, essentially, I believe ONC came out and said it, it it's you know it's not it, it's the patient's responsibility to kind of vet the the apps. It's not your our responsibility to say, you know, we think that app is going to you know, mine it and, and sell it to Russia for hacking. You know, if if that if the patient was comfortable with it, it was kind of their decision and left it up to the patient to to be good stewards of their privacy. It's almost the same as the patient now goes on Facebook and says, I have all these medical problems. We can't stop the patient from doing that. And it's that patient's responsibility to know that you know, it's probably not a good use of your data to, to do that. Does that then become a challenge of their future insurability? If, if this pre-existing uh, part of the Affordable Care Act is revoked, and yet I'm, I've got an app on my phone, I've just shared my PHI, am I, is that a challenge to my insurability? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, that would, you have to ask one of your friends in, in insurance, but, um, I, I could see where that could get you into trouble, but uh, I don't know the direct answer to that. Okay. Well, Jay, you, you, you've done nothing but just stir the pot with this, this information. It is, it's great. It is, it is, uh, I think, I hope, hope the, the, the audience has learned a lot in this conversation today. I appreciate your time and actually you serving as the, the person being interviewed for a change and being in the hot seat. So. Jake, I, I, I thank you for sitting down with all of us today and teaching us about information blocking and what the 21st Century Cures Act looks like and will feel like to us. Thanks a lot for your time today. No, no problem. I, this messenger feels effectively shot, so I, I appreciate your questions today. All right, and thank you, everybody, for listening to Right Care Baptist. You can find the link to the, the CME survey so you can earn your CME credit. Thanks again, and have a great day.